0: Amen. Thank you, Dylan. I'm thankful for you. Uh, So, if you're here for the first time, you're jumping in in the middle or toward the end of our series in Mark. And uh, we're jumping in in Mark 14. And uh, there's something special about preaching through the the Gospels and reading through the Gospels. And why is that? Why do we enjoy the Gospels so much? You know, we love the the narrative of the Old Testament, We, we love to wrestle with the theology of Paul, but there's something sweet and personal about the view of our Savior in his life and in his ministry, his humanity and his, and his deity on, on display, because we learn from him, but more importantly, we learn to love him. And so this is one of those passages that will and should stir your affection to love the Lord, because in this passage, his humanity is on full display, the depths and the authenticity of his humanity is evident here. And in his sinless perfection, we are in awe of his example in prayer. And so we're going to look at this morning, him teaching us the what, the when, the where, the how, and the why of prayer. All of these things we see in Jesus' practice. And there's a couple of things in here that are going to be difficult to interpret and have confounded scholars throughout the ages, Um, but what we need to take away from this text is simple and plain and is edifying for his body, because we're going to look at his human example, but more importantly, the weight of his work for us, so that we may have confidence in him. So without further ado, I'm going to begin reading in uh, verse 32 of chapter 14. Got a lot of ground to cover, so we are going to get moving. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Abba, Father, come before you this morning unworthy in our fallen humanity but worthy because of the righteousness of Christ and his, and his intercession. Lord, may the text this morning drive us to your presence. May it stir us in prayer. May our affections long to draw near to you. May we seek To put to death our own weakness, sinful tendencies. May we stay awake to the things of the world. May we be sober-minded with our eyes fixed on you. And may we rest calmly and gently at the foot of your throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been looking at Jesus' time in Jerusalem in the last week of his life and his journey from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem. And he took this time in the upper room to set a table before his disciples and institute this supper that would be a reminder for them going forward and a celebration until he returns. Uh, And this night, the final trip uh, out of Jerusalem in freedom, he goes again to the east, goes through the, the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a garden uh, about a mile to the east of the city at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And this was one of his favorite places to pray. And, and they, this would have been known to them. He did this quite frequently. And so this is the first thing we're going to learn about Jesus in his prayer life. Where does he pray? He instructed Jesus. His hearers earlier on in Matthew, not to pray publicly like the other legalistic Pharisees, but to go quietly. Jesus found a place with no distractions where he could be completely focused on the Father. And in this night, this important night of all nights, he desperately needed that communion with the Father. And he has this secluded place. Luke includes an important detail here that he was a stone's throw away. Meaning, they could see him, they could hear him. This is why we have this account, as much as they remember before they fell asleep. And what they saw, he wanted them to see. They must witness this, they must see this example. This must be ingrained in their, in their minds. And so he begins with the simple words, sit here while I pray. And so then he... Sets another example, the where but also the when. Jesus knows that this is a night in a 24-hour period where he will be afflicted like no other, and no one since or before has ever been afflicted. Sit and pray. And so this example of prayer before and during great and difficult things. I don't want us to miss this, because for us, if we're honest, our prayer life is usually reactionary, right? It's usually we try first in our own strength. If you try and succeed, and you keep trying again, then you go to prayer, or you approach something difficult, and you're so busy trying to map things out in 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 your head, or you're so terrified of what's going to happen that you are paralyzed in fear, and that prayer is often an afterthought. But what Jesus does, knowing he's going into this difficult hour and this difficult season, what does he do? He goes first and foremost to the Father. And so that's a great exhortation to us. Before you go into that difficult conversation, before you know you have to do something hard or or something painful, pray. Go to the Father. Find time of silence and solace. Entrust your life, your words, your actions to him as Jesus did. And so we we see two facets of his prayer. Last week, We looked at the prophesying of the denial of Peter, but we brought in the extended narrative that John includes. So John, in chapters 13 through 17, fills in the time between the meal and his betrayal. And in this time, we see Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prays out loud in front of them. First, he prays for his disciples. He intercedes for them goes to the Father that the Father may be glorified through the Son and that the disciples may be united in them both as they are united. He prays for his disciples first. But now, once he has done that, he submits himself to the Father in spirit before he will submit himself in flesh. And so when he goes into the garden, he, he goes off to pray. He doesn't go by himself He takes the the three likely characters, the three amigos here. He took Peter, James, and John. And they should be the loyal companions, the sons of thunder. And Peter, uh, the impulsive wonder. You know, these guys were his inner circle and he invested in them. And they were zealous and they would become great pillars of the church after his resurrection. But in this time, they leave much to be desired. So when he brings them, Notice the language here, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He doesn't tell them, they witness it. These are two strong words in the Greek. Um, Greatly distressed, this is a psychological word. Um, This is to be amazed or to be terrified and alarmed. The second one, troubled, it's an emotional word. means to be agitated or anxious. There is a psychological and an emotional component to Jesus, and they are witnessing it. It is is on his very countenance. So when he says the words to support it, my soul is very sorrowful in verse 34. It is evidence. Soul in the Hebrew and in the Greek conception is, is life. Your very being. He is burdened with grief. I am encompassed. With sorrow. And it made me think about our time in Jonah. You know, and we talk about this, this prayer of Jonah. If anyone else prayed this, this prayer would be a model prayer. But there are so many parallels the, the, the waves and, and the billows that Jonah experienced, the, the, the depth and the weight of his own depravity. Imagine the depth and the weight of all of our depravity. This is why he is so sorrowful, even unto death. Not like Jonah, who wants to die because things are not going his way, but Jesus, who is sorrowful and willing to die. This is what he's telling them. And this is one of many examples of his humility, humility excuse me, his humility in his humanity. This text displays his humanity because he's like us. Every one of us in this room knows what it feels like to be burdened. Every one of us in this room knows what it feels like to be distressed or troubled or sorrowful. But here's where he's not like us. Perfectly. Without sin. We have no concept of what it means to be, to be hurt, to be sorrowful, and not be afraid. We don't even have a category for that. This is the most intense affliction of spirit in all of Scripture. I want you to turn to Luke to see the intensity of it. In Luke's account, chapter twenty-two parallels John's, or excuse me, um, Mark's and uh, Matthew's, but he adds a couple other helpful details. I just want to look at two verses: Luke twenty-two, verse 30, uh, 43 and forty-four. And so as he's praying, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Just like in the wilderness, Jesus, in the spirit of God, fully in communion with the Father, is being ministered and sustained by the heavenly hosts. This is so great that God must send his soldiers to give him strength. And if you didn't think it was great enough, verse 44, and being in agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the sorrow of soul that Jesus is describing. This is his distress and his his troubled countenance that the disciples are witnessing. But what makes this so intense? What is it that makes him pray and pray and pray again? And what is it that makes him sweat blood out of his forehead Because of what he has to face for us. How often we forget. If you were in this room and you were in Christ. How often it's easy to go through our daily lives. Go to our jobs. Go to class. Deal with our kids. And forget. That the most troubling time in Jesus' life. In the garden. Was looking at your sin in the face was preparing to take on the, 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 the weight of your wretchedness. And he bled out of his forehead at the very thought of it. We know we're sinful, but we have no idea the depth of our sin until you see your Savior bleed out of his forehead. The gospel we take comfort in, but it is only a comfort. It is only good news because of the bad news. It is only good news that his blood is sufficient for our sins because our sins are so reprehensible and so dark and so heavy that he will soon fall to his face before the Father and ask, is there any other way? The gospel is the good news that if you are in Christ, Your sins, the sins of his people throughout all time in all ages are borne by him on the cross. Never to be picked up again. Never to be counted against you again. But in this moment, he is counting the cost of what will be placed on his humanity. Now, if you're guilty... If you're a criminal, you should expect to pay for your crimes, but nobody, nobody walks up to the firing squad and says, I will take the penalty for somebody else's crimes. You have to live with you. I have to live with me. You know how hard your sins are to bear. Imagine bearing someone else's sins and doing it in pure holiness. We can't imagine. This is what Jesus is facing in his humanity. And what we'll see in the garden is that Jesus will suffer twice. He will bleed twice. Before bearing the physical and spiritual weight of our sins on the cross, he would first bear the emotional and psychological weight in the garden. Jesus knows what he has to do. Here, he is modeling what it means to be the suffering servant every passage in this section. We looked at the suffering servant a lot in chapter 13. We'll see it come up in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Really, if we're preaching the scriptures, we should all make our way back to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Time won't permit me to go there this morning, but I want you to think about that imagery in which Isaiah prophesies. The one who was pierced for our transgressions. The substitute that is crushed for our iniquities, that that bears our sins, that carries the weight of the many so that they might be healed, so that they might have peace. Amen. This is what it means to serve. This is what he is preparing to do in this hour. This is no ordinary prayer. This is no ordinary death. He redeemed us from the curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. And this prayer is preparing to take on the curse. For those of us here this morning, this is who we put our faith in. And if your faith is not in him, the weight of your sin on Jesus, don't you dare think you can bear it on your own. Don't you dare think you can stand before him in your own works and your own goodness because, as we're going to see in a moment, the disciples couldn't even stay awake long enough for Jesus to pray for their sins, let alone account for their sins. This is why we must put our faith in Christ because only he could bear the weight of our sin. Amen. And he gives them another simple command one simple command sit. Easy enough. Remain here and watch. Also a simple command. They had no idea what Jesus was going to do. They had no idea what was coming before them. Even though he had prophesied it many times, they still did not grasp it. How could they? But we do. We do because we know what comes next. We know what he was asking them to do, to remain and be watchful. And because we know what comes next, There is a greater responsibility, but a greater encouragement. So if you've been following the news, how is it that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, who are being forced from their homes, who are being threatened to be burned alive, whose daughters and wives are being hunted down to be tools for perversion and profit, how is it that they can still praise the Lord? How is it that they can pray? How is it that they can find comfort? How is it they can still trust in this Jesus who would allow these wicked men to hunt them down? Because the hardest thing you have ever endured is nothing, nothing compared to enduring the weight, the full weight of your sin. Because they know that Jesus has taken. Their wickedness and given him their righteousness. They have no fear of the one who can kill the body. Because they're in the hands of the one who can send to hell. But the one who has sanctified them for eternity. So Jesus gives this direction. And then he goes off. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground. Notice here, the spiritual burden, the, the emotional weight now has a physical response. His, his posture is one of falling on his face. He fell and prayed. And humanly speaking, this prayer is understandable. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. We are often too timid in our prayers. Jesus teaches us here that that bold prayers, he knows how good his father is. He knows that his father listens. And it is not sinful to ask for this hour to be removed. This is a comfort for us. We can ask God, will you remove this? But here's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus knows that God is not obligated to follow our example, or excuse me, or to answer our requests. You can ask. That's right. But as we'll see in a moment, it is not your will which is supreme, it is, it is his. But he fell and prayed under the gravity, under the, the weight of the sins of the world. And So I want to spend a few moments on, per, on his prayer here in verse 36. This could be our entire sermon. This is the, the heart of our text. I want to begin with how he begins. Abba, Father. This is the Aramaic and then the, the translation for the Greek reader. But also, there's a repetition in terms to show the intimacy that is present in the Aramaic that's not really present in the Greek. And the other thing here, too, is that he shows he is not any ordinary rabbi. Because a normal rabbi would not dare to speak in such intimate, personal terms with the God of heaven. Jesus is showing his his intimacy as son with the Father. And so I want to encourage you this morning that on earth, we can pray the way Jesus prayed because of our adoption. I want to lean in here for a moment. So turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see all of the similarities between what Jesus models for us in the Garden of Gethsemane and what Paul exhorts believers to in chapter 8. The believers in chapter 8, these are the ones who will no longer face condemnation. These are The ones who are given the the spirit because of the righteousness of Christ. Here's what it means to be sons. Jesus directs us in prayer that now we have the privilege of if you are indeed in Christ. Picking up in verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. There's no universal sonship. We're not all children of God. This is a privileged title that Jesus paid his life for for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This is a man going before God. Jesus is not fearful in this moment. He is humble. There's a great difference. But you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's why it's important in Jesus' baptism that the spirit descends on him, that his ministry is in full agreement with the Father and the spirit. The total agreement of the Godhead, and if you are indeed in Christ, that same Spirit that came upon him in his baptism, that same Spirit in his humanity that cries out, Abba, Father, is within us and, and appeals to our Father as sons. This is important. We are not approaching an angry God who is waiting for us to screw up, We are approaching a loving father. So much so that he sends his spirit to teach us how to pray. To pray in the same way that Jesus does. The spirit of adoption. That takes you from orphans to the dinner table. Takes you from starvation to feasting. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do we know that we are his? Because God himself declares that we are his because God himself has changed our very nature. Our heart beats with new life. Our minds are transformed. And in that, children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He suffered first in the garden going before us, going to the cross. We are too comfortable right now, but it may not be that way for long. Our brothers in Afghanistan know what it means right now to suffer for Christ because they know what it means to be adopted and because they know they will one day be glorified. If you are in Christ and your confidence is in your adoption and your hope is in your glorification, you can suffer well. And Jesus introduces us to this in Mark. And he says, all things are possible for you. This is not a matter of ability. This is not because God can't deliver him. Jesus knows that, and we should know that. But he asks a straightforward question, even demands here, remove this cup from me. The cup and the hour here are, Synonymous. We we have talked about that the the cup of the wrath of God placed on His Son. But this is hard for us because what is He really asking here? If we be honest with, with ourselves, like we're having a bit of a mental disconnect because we just saw last week that He prophesied it is God's will to strike the shepherd and to scatter the, the sheep. He just prophesied against us. Is he going to contradict himself now? He had been telling them for weeks now, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me. But I'm going to rise again. How is it that Jesus can ask for this hour, to, this cup to be removed for something that he has been prophesying? I will tell you, he's not changing his mind now. In his humanity... He asked, like we would, is there any other way? Teaching us that we can be honest with God. This is a faithful prayer. But, yet, in our text, some of us ask the prayer and stop there. Remove this from me. God, take it away. 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 You must keep reading. Yet. This is the more important part of the prayer. Not what I will, but what you will. Here's our example. Not just when to pray and where to pray and who we pray to, but how to pray. This is what is more, this is what is important in all of this. How we pray. In humility, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is how he taught us to pray. This is how he models it for them. Not my will, but yours. In humble submission. In the garden, he submits his will. But on the hill, he will submit his body in just a few hours. This shows us that he voluntarily lays down his life. No one takes it from him. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep freely giving it before the Father. So I want you to see here, there is no change, there is no second guessing in the eternal Son, but there is continued growth in Jesus, the Son of Man. Wait, what? Uh, What are you saying? That there is growth in Jesus, the Son of Man? Yes, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We saw this in Luke. We saw that he grew in wisdom and in, in, in stature and in favor with man. But the writer of Hebrews brings all this together, and I want you to see the logical progression in Hebrews 5. And so when we think about learning, when we think about growing, don't think about it in our fallen sense. We think about learning as if I don't know something. I'm coming from a place of, of, of ignorance. I must be improved upon. It is not that way with Jesus. He does not need to be improved upon. But there is a a, a type of growth that is unique to the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 5, pick up in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, referencing our very text here, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Don't you dare make Jesus indifferent and uncompassionate. With loud cries and tears, who did he pray to? To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard and he was saved according to the Father's will and the Father's timing. He was heard, remove this, this, this cup from me. The writer of Hebrews translates here for us. He is saved, he's he's delivered from death, but in the Father's timing, but in the Father's will. And although he was a son, he's a divine son, truly God, the same substance, the same essence of the Father. But in his humanity he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when you hear that he learned Don't see a moral or an intellectual lack here. He is not lacking anything here. This is growth. This is is him in his full humanity growing in obedience, in submission. He is faithful to the end, made perfect, complete, final to the very end. He did everything that was required of him perfectly. Not one misstep, not one shortcoming. Human obedience to the end. Notice the pattern here. From prayer to obedience to suffering to salvation. And finally, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the trajectory of the ministry of Emmanuel, God with us. Prayerful obedience on earth suffering as a substitute so that he may be salvation and our high priest. And he's our great high priest who knows our suffering and our lack in every way. Therefore, he must learn and grow as a man, but do it perfectly. Again, this is something we have no category for. We have no conception of what it means to learn without lacking, to grow without having to grow out of sin and wickedness. So there's a great lesson in Jesus' prayer here, in his humility. Everything he did as a suffering servant, he does for you, but he prayed in such a way, knowing God would answer him. Knowing God hears him, but maybe not how we often think He should, or when he should. Jesus prayed perfectly and in perfect obedience, yet it was God's will for him to endure this trial for us. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you do when God doesn't answer when and how you think he should? Do your prayers sound like this? Can you pray in this way? Lord, take this from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Can you say that and mean it? Or are you still treating God like a cosmic genie? You're trying to rub the lamp in just the right way so that he will do what you want him to do. Can we pray this prayer and mean it? Lord, I don't think I can bear this, but I trust you. This is what Jesus models before us. Because if he didn't say these words, we wouldn't have this picture. So I was struck by this last night, as often happens, and you know, wrestling through text week to week, and uh, I want it to make perfect sense in my mind, and I've got an idea of where I want to go, and often an idea of, of what I think the focus of the text should be, and then there are many times, often on Saturday night, uh, where I am struggling because something's missing. Something is, something's just not connecting here, and I was struggling with this, this final section, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But I was confronted with this as I'm looking at the text, and I'm looking at my notes, and I'm looking at the text, and I'm looking at my notes, and looking at the text, and looking at my notes, and I realize I'm reading a text about prayer, and I need to close my notes, and I need to pray. And it was in that time of submitting myself to the Lord where it hit me like a ton of bricks. You missed the point of this, this final section. So initially, I'm looking at the weakness of the disciples, and we will talk about that. That's easy. If you know me, it, like to criticize something, that's second nature. I could preach that in my sleep. Um, I probably do. But I miss something greater. There's a supreme encouragement in this text, and I want you to see it in our, in our final moments. So picking up in verse 37. And before we get to that encouragement, I want to walk through the text a little bit. So he came and he found them sleeping. Now notice, remember where we are. This is a long day. They are preparing for the, for, for the Passover. The animals are slaughtered. The meal is, is cooked. This, this meal was probably three to four hours as they're recounting all the details of the Exodus. And then he talks for another four chapters in John. We don't know if anything else was said. It is late at night, probably close to midnight, if not later. They are understandably tired. And so knowing there are human limitations, we accept that. And so I don't take it too personal when you fall asleep here. But at least they fell asleep at night, uh, not in the morning. So the first thing I want you to see here, the disciples are, are, are sleeping. So if there's ever any temptation, like, like Dylan said earlier, can I be perfect for just one day? Like if there's ever any temptation to think that my salvation could be accomplished by my own will, forget it. They couldn't even stay awake long enough for Jesus to pray for them let alone stand in righteousness before a holy God. This is a reminder of the weakness of of humanity. And it's easy to criticize them, but we have all been there. So three of them fell asleep, but he addresses one. The same one who brashly confronted Jesus again face to face last week. But he gets a bit of a demotion. And he says to Peter, Simon... It's like when your mom gives you your, your, your full name. You know you're in trouble. Like you're, I'm calling you my rock, but you're not there yet. You're still Simon. Yeah, that's right. You are not a rock. You are still Simon. The little fisherman kid with all this energy, all this spunk, yet can't stay awake. And so he exhorts him, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You think you will die for me? You can't even stay awake for an hour. And he tells all of them, watch and pray. This will be our closing exhortation. So I want you to meditate on these words. Watch and pray. We saw this in the last chapter. That they were to be alert. They were to be awake. To be ready for his second coming. But do not separate it from prayer And there is a reason, because until I come, be watchful, be prayerful, that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation is always around the corner, and in their case, it was literally around the corner, because all of these soldiers were to show up with their swords, they were ready to take Jesus, and what would they do? They'd be tempted in just a moment, and we'll see in a couple weeks what they do. Watch and pray. His temptation is always coming, but Jesus in his graciousness and his patience, you can see him looking on them lovingly and saying, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So as we talk about flesh and spirit here, uh, don't think about the appalling sense of like New man, old man, righteousness, wickedness. Jesus is, is talking about the, the dichotomy here, um, or almost the, the a, a dualism between your, your, your spirit, which just means breath. You have life in you that is given to you by God, in which you communicate with God. But you've got a carnal, broken vessel that you walk around in every day. Your spirit what god has given you is willing but your flesh this bag of flesh and bones that you wear around around you is weak this bodily temporal element and we understand this this is the tension within the life of every christian we have a desire in us there's a longing in us to be in communion with with God to be bold and stand in Him, but we're tired. We're weak. After it's been a long day of teaching or working or studying, it is hard to stay awake. It is hard to endure, and Jesus knows. But praise God. We have the spirit of adoption within us who teaches us to cry out to the Father who makes our flesh cry. So Jesus here is talking about spirit, lowercase, the life within us. But we have the spirit, uppercase, new life within us that even in the failing of our flesh carries us on, speaks when we can't speak, teaches us when we are too dull to learn. And so this contrast continues between their weak flesh and his endurance, 39 and 40, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. The heavy weight of Jesus' burden for their, for their own sins, and the weight of their heavy eyes after a big meal and a long day, even in his humanity he sets an example for us here we are often helplessly weak and tired it's amazing that the greater point here the greater encouragement is that our savior doesn't sleep you know he slept on the boat because there was nothing to fear on the sea of galilee he knew that by his very the power of his breath he could calm the storm But here, in the time when he needs to be awake, in the time when he needs to be alert and steadfast, he is. They sleep, but he does not. He perseveres, and think about this. He will never sleep again. Our Savior will never sleep again. We read from Psalm 121 earlier. He who keeps you will never slumber nor sleep Our Jesus who did not sleep that night, who awakened in his communion with the Father, will never sleep, never slumber again. He is awake at all times. His humanity being perfected, being completed here on earth is now awake and watchful and working at every moment. This is what I was missing when I was reading this and I just want to criticize the disciples. I miss what was standing right in front of my face. Even when we fall asleep, even when we fall short, Jesus will not. And we can come before our high priest because he does not sleep. He does not cease to intercede. This is the beautiful encouragement of this. But we read this in We can either pick at the disciples or admit that we're like the disciples. Like a bunch of lazy teenagers who don't want to get up on a Saturday morning. And here we are. You've been there? I have. Um, So during his time, he's awake. And the third time he comes back, verse 41, are you still sleeping and taking rest? Jesus is just, it's enough. The hour has come. Uh, scholars are just—they're confused on what "it's enough" means. Is it enough? Meaning, I'm tired of coming back and asking you three times, "Is enough?" Uh, or I think it is probably more. It's enough. I have prayed. I've submitted my will. The time has come. His time of grief and submission is done. And the man is at peace and he knows what is coming. He says, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I want you to notice this, verse 42. This is not a reluctant, disobedient son. This shows the determining determination and strength in the midst of his hour, in the midst of his cup. Rise, here it is. He stands confidently, humbly before the Father, but boldly before wicked man. My betrayer is at hand, but it is the Father's will it must be done. So a couple points of application as we wind down here. For us, be watchful. We're like the three. We have been invited by Jesus to follow him to walk with him, to model him as our example, to put our faith in him. But how often do we fall asleep? How often do we miss the gravity of our calling? How often are we so tired from the day's events and all of the burdens of our life that we can't stay awake? Now, this is not a call to physical insomnia, this is a call to spiritual watchfulness. Watch and pray. Remember those words from earlier. So that you do not fall into temptation. This is what he has given you in his spirit. Watchfulness and prayerfulness. You've got this very spirit of truth who teaches you to discern the age and who, and who teaches you how to speak to the Father. So first watch. Do not be lulled to sleep by the ways of the world. Do not fall into comfort and laziness and think that you belong here. Do not find your identity in the things that give immediate comfort. We are always to be sober, sober-minded. We are always to have our eyes on the Savior because temptation is always at hand, and every one of us in this room knows. When you are not watchful, when you get too comfort too comfortable, the enemy and your flesh is right there to war against your spirit. Number two, pray. I want to just recap what Jesus teaches us. The what of prayer. The what? It is beautiful communion and intimacy with our loving Father, coming before a personal God who listens, who saves, who delivers. When? Any time, but especially before and during difficult times. Get your strength from him, not yourself. Where? A place where you can limit distractions. You should and must be in the regular practice of being alone with your God. Allowing him to be your focus. Allowing your affections and your desires to be on him. How? With a posture of humility. We can also have the intimacy and the directness that Jesus does, but be careful to be humble. Jesus, the son of God, falls on his face before his father. And humbly says, not my will, but Our will, but your will be done. And who does he pray to? A gracious and loving Father. With perfect will, perfect understanding. Who he knows will deliver him, even from the grave. And finally, why? Why do we pray? Not because God is some cosmic genie or because we are trying to earn his favor. But because we are beloved sons. We pray because of our adoption. Jesus died so that you could call him Abba. Call him Abba. This is a call for watchfulness and prayerfulness, but also this is a call for blessed rest and communion because our high priest never sleeps. I want to give you a few moments to just go before the Lord in prayer. Prepare your hearts and minds to respond in song. Commit your thoughts, your affections, and your actions this week. To the glory of God, to the exaltation of Jesus Christ, to walking in the Spirit, living as sons of the King. God and Father, we lift our eyes up to the hills. From where our help comes, our help comes from the Lord. You are maker of heaven and earth. You will not let our foot be moved. You who keeps us will not slumber. Behold, you who keeps the Israel of God will neither slumber nor sleep. We praise you as the immovable God. the immutable God, the impassable God. The God who is steadfast and sleepless, who is working, does not need a Sabbath, but institutes a Sabbath to teach us to rest in you. May we read a text like this and learn to rest in you. May we not sleep spiritually, but may we have heavenly rest physically, knowing that this flesh may be weak, but we are given the spirit of adoption that seals our sonship, that guarantees our inheritance, that promises our glory, and will continue us to the end through the intercession of our high priest, through the perfect plan of the Father, to his glory and to our good. It is in Jesus' name we pray, the good shepherd, the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb, the great high priest, the great I am, the name above all names. May he be praised. Amen.